We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 318 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Moonwalk 2, Part 2. How about a round of golf? Using our release map, we're trying to picture them as they talk and work their way up to the tip of cone, to the rim of cone. You can hear they're winded, they're working their way up this slope. About a 300-foot incline from the lower area down by Station B, up around the flanks, and the top of cone. Okay, and Alan, Ed, uh, why don't we take a little uh, rest here for a minute, uh, and uh, we'd uh, like another camp account, too. Capcom Fred Hayes telling them to rest. They're sounding winded. Like a what? We haven't taken any pictures since the last one, I don't think. Okay, Ed. They've been sounding winded, carrying that load as they okay, work their we'll way up this area. Okay, we'll the uh, traverse here. Well, while the astronauts are taking a uh, rest, we'll take a break. We'll have more on Apollo 14 right after this message. Continuing from the previous episode, Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell are on their second moonwalk, trying to reach the rim of Cone Crater. But time is running out, and they must find the rim soon or be forced to return to the lunar module. At 4.17 a.m., Shepard and Mitchell came to another rise and stopped to rest again. All around them, the ground was littered with rocks that must have rained out of the sky like artillery fire after the impact that formed Cone Crater. 230 feet below, the valley was awash in sunlight. Mitchell was sure that somewhere close by among the rocks was the crater. Capcom Fred Hayes radioed, Deke says he'll cover the bet if you'll drop the Met. But Mitchell rejected that idea. They would need their tools when they reached the rim. The Met's not slowing us down, Shepard said gamely. It's just a question of time. We'll get there. And uh, Alan Ed, uh, Deke says he'll cover the bet if you'll uh, drop the Met. Following his commander, Mitchell watched him pull the tool cart. He realized Shepard was not heading in the right direction. Al, 
Head left. It's right up there. Yeah, I'm going, Shepard replied. Time uh, 133 hours, uh, 58 minutes, 2 hours, 9 minutes since uh, cabin depressurization. They pushed onward, dodging boulders. Both men were breathing hard. Again, they stopped. We're right in the middle of the boulder field on the west rim, Shepard radioed. We haven't quite reached the rim yet. When Mitchell heard those words, he realized Shepard thought they were farther to the north than they really were. No wonder he had been heading toward the rise straight ahead. He thought they were just west of the crater. Mitchell was sure they were south of it. He pulled the map from its holder on the Met. Yes, he could see where they were now. If they headed north, off to the left, they would reach the rim. He went over to Shepard and showed him the map. Look, he said, his words interrupted by heavy breathing. Let me show you something. We're down here. We've got to go up there. Mitchell now pulled the Met and accidentally caught a boulder and almost tipped over, but he saved it. Now the grade flattened out. They had reached the point of maximum elevation, but a minute and a half later, the rim was still nowhere in sight. Mitchell realized that once more, the moon had fooled them. Intently, he studied the map. This big boulder owl that stands out bigger than anything else, we ought to see it by now, said Mitchell. They were so close, if only they had a little more time, but that was something they just did not have. Okay, Ed and Al, Hayes' voice was matter of fact, but his words meant the quest was over. They had eaten into the half-hour extension. They couldn't take any more time looking. They had to start sampling. And, uh, Alan, Ed, uh, do you have the rim in sight uh, this time? No, that is negative. We don't uh, haven't found that yet. 
Twenty years later, Mitchell would say, quote, It was terribly, terribly frustrating coming up over that ridge that we were going up and thinking, finally, that was it. And it wasn't. Suddenly recognizing that really, you just don't know where you are. You know you're close. You can't be very far away. But you know you got to quit and go back. It was probably one of the most frustrating periods I've ever experienced. There's no feeling of being lost. I mean, the lunar module is there. We can get back to the lunar module. It's not reaching and looking down into that bloody crater. It's terribly frustrating. End quote. Still, Mitchell did admit that in spite of his personal frustration, Houston's judgment to tell them to stop looking for the rim was the proper decision. In the 1971 technical debrief, Shepard would say, quote, If we had gotten to the point where we had been willing to do away with the rest of the traverse, we could have made the rim all right. But I personally wasn't willing to do that. I felt that gathering more samples was the better of the two choices. We looked at the map again today and saw two boulder fields that indicate that we were probably within 150 to 300 feet from the rim and still were not able to see it. That was a pretty good-sized lunar feature. To be that close to the top of the thing and not see it, that is just part of the navigation problem. End quote. Shepard and Mitchell gathered some rocks from the place where they had stopped, and then they headed down the slope to the northwest toward the strange white rocks Shepard had noticed earlier. The geologist had said the rocks of the lunar highlands would be different, and these surely were unlike any of the samples they had seen in the lunar receiving lab. Wielding a geology hammer, Mitchell approached the boulders, which were four or five feet high. Streaks of gray and brilliant white ran through them like pulled taffy. At the first strike, an outer surface crumbled away. Mitchell hit the rock again, harder, and knocked off a chip about the size of an egg. Clumsy in his gloves, he struggled to place it in a small Teflon sample bag rolled up the top and placed it in the rock bag on the mat. Already, it was time to leave. Okay, Fredo, I'm right in the midst of a whole pile of very large boulders here. It's uh, 
do to grab a meaningful sample. First of all, let me start by photographing. They're all so darn big that there's hardly anything that I can find. Let's see if I can chip one. Okay, Ed, now. Okay. Set off. To get us uh get us uh, back uh, on the old timeline here. Uh, when you depart the uh, sea uh, here, we'd like to uh, proceed uh, directly uh, to uh, yeah, Weird. And uh, we'll pick back up from that point. Uh, en route, uh, you can make uh, grab samples as you uh, see fit. Of course, the downhill walk back to the lunar module was faster. But both men were tired and more than a little disappointed. On the way down, Shepard and Mitchell did make up for some of the time lost in the climb because now they could really move, bounding downhill in giant slow motion leaps, sailing over rocks as they went. They did stop and take samples at all of the planned geology stations. Here's an example clip of one of their stops. This was at Geology Station F, located east of Triplet Crater. Okay, I get the pair. I think uh, crater itself is right here. Isn't it? Where are you? Behind you to your left. Any right in there? Well, I didn't think so. I think this is it right here. Uh, it's too small, I believe. Well, hey, we're in the area, Houston. Shepard and Mitchell continued their return, passing Weird Crater, Triplet, Station G, and G1, heading toward Antares. They had no trouble navigating. Fortunately, at one of the higher stations, they had stopped near a large boulder. They spotted the big rock while they were still on the slope and kept it in sight all the way down. Three hours after they had left Antares, Shepard and Mitchell returned with their precious cargo of rocks and film. By now, they were both very tired. 
Unfortunately, they had just a brief amount of time to stow all their collected rocks into compartments in the limb and say goodbye to Fromaro before lifting off and docking with Rusa orbiting in Kitty Hawk. But first, Shepard had a little surprise, which he had promised Deke Slayton he would unveil only if the mission was proceeding on schedule and there were no unexpected glitches. Shepard had dreamed up this demonstration one day during training. When Bob Hope came for a tour of the Space Center, Shepard and Slayton were escorting Hope, and they took him over to the 1-6-G rig that they used to simulate walking on the moon. Bob Hope carried a golf club with him everywhere he went, as if it were a pacifier and he refused to let go of it even when they had him on the rig. There he was, bouncing around with that golf club in his hand, and that's when Shepard, also an avid golfer, began to think of a way of incorporating his hobby on the moon, and also distinguishing himself from previous moonwalkers. Shepard moved quickly to set up the little performance he had long planned. He adjusted the television camera, making sure it was aimed at him. Then he trotted over into the camera's view, reached into his thigh pocket, and pulled out a genuine six-iron club head, which he attached to the end of the telescoping arm of a rock-collecting tool. He then reached into another pocket and withdrew what he described to the camera as a little white pellet that is familiar to millions of Americans. Uh, Houston, while you're looking that up, you might recognize what I have in my hand is the uh, handle for the contingency sample return. I just so happens to have a... Shepard's wife, Louise, had watched him practice this performance many times in their backyard. But except for his good friend, Deke Slayton, Allen had kept it a secret. He didn't tell his backup, Gene Cernan, or even Ed Mitchell or Stu Rosa. During the pre-flight quarantine, Shepard managed to sneak out after hours, put on a spacesuit, and practice swinging without falling over. But on the moon, his pressurized suit was so stiff that he had to swing his makeshift club one-handed. Now he dropped the ball onto the surface and told Houston he was going to try a little sand trap shot. He bent his knees, twisted his back, and swung awkwardly at the ball, missing it completely. Fred Hayes, commenting from Mission Control, said, It looked like a slice to me, Al. And Shepard admitted that he got more dirt than ball. Uh, drop it down. Unfortunately, the suit is so stiff I can't do this with two hands, but I'm going to try a little sand trap shot here. Got more dirt 
On his second swing, Shepard caught a piece of the ball and sent it dribbling just a few dozen yards away. That looked like a slice to me, Al. There we go. Three the die. One more. Then he pulled out a second ball and dropped it to the dust. He swung once more and made contact and the ball sailed away into the black sky, arching over the craters in slow motion. Shepard announced, Miles and miles and miles. Miles and miles and miles. Very good, Al. Later, Shepard admitted the ball went about 200 yards, but he had done it something no one else had done or ever would do again, something that put his personal stamp on Apollo 14. He had golfed on the moon, a gesture that would forever endear him to the golfers back on Earth. Mitchell entered Antares first and began stowing equipment and rocks. Shepard entered shortly thereafter, but before he did, he took a moment to inform Houston. Okay, Houston. Crew of Antares is leaving from our base. Roger, hell yeah. You and Ed did a great job. Don't think I could have done any better myself. That's debatable, isn't it, Fredo? Well, I guess not now, Ed. Okay, the dust is knocked off. Okay, you ready? Get over behind the door. Okay, let's go. I'm moving out of your way. Come on in. All right, come on in. Okay. Got more doors than that, Ed. All right, just a minute. Wait a minute. Back out. I've got to turn. Okay. Now, come on in. At 136 hours, 21 minutes elapsed time, the hatch was closed, ending Moonwalk 2. Okay, Houston, the door is closed. 136 hours, 21 minutes, Mitchell reporting, uh, the hatch door is closed. Salutations from the land of 10,000 lakes. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode 318 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14 Moonwalk 2 Part 2. How about a round of golf? Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 147 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. 
have a few afterthoughts. Once again, I relied heavily on Andrew Chaikin's book, A Man on the Moon, and he had a great write-up of that second moonwalk, so I want to credit him. I'll list the rest of my sources at the end of the episode. In the technical brief, you might recall that Shepard mentioned that they could have found the rim of Cone Crater if they had abandoned their sampling for the return trip. Should they have done that? Would it have been worth it to reach the rim but not have the samples to take back from the return trip? I say no, and I agree with the decision to discontinue the search for the rim. What did you think about the uh, golf on the moon? That act may have endeared Shepard to golfers, but it provided fuel to the critics of the moon program. I have heard them say many times, why did we go to the moon, just to play golf? So why did Shepard do that? He wanted to distinguish himself from the other moonwalkers, and he accomplished that. But to me, it seems more about Shepard's ego. He was thinking more about himself than the moon program. At the time, it was kind of fun to watch that, but in the long run, I think it would have been better if he had not done it. Okay, one last thing. At the end of the moonwalk, did you catch Capcom Fred Hayes saying that he could not have done a better job on the moonwalk himself? If you have not heard the Apollo 13 series, you might not have realized the irony of that statement. It was supposed to be Hayes at Framaro, but the explosion on Apollo 13 caused Hayes to miss his chance and thus became Apollo 14's mission. You see, Lovell and Hayes had the advantage of having trained as backups to Apollo 11 and therefore were able to devote a far greater fraction of their training time to geology than the crew of Apollo 14 who quite appropriately devoted most of their training time to spacecraft systems and flight operations. So Hayes' statement was both gracious and ironic. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Well, folks, I am very happy to report that we did receive significant support from some very generous contributors to the podcast over the past two weeks, not just one week, two weeks this time. Thank you for supporting the podcast during the dog days of summer drought. I would like to recognize Charles W. from Georgia. His dad, Thomas W., donated at the Orion level. Chris H. from New Jersey donated above and beyond the Orion level. Gabriele C. from Italy donated at the Orion level. Martin G. from London sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. An anonymous donor sent in a donation at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. D.B. sent in another donation this year and moved to the commercial level. Christopher H. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Warren A. donated at the Mercury level. Eric W. donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Andreas S. from the U.K. sent in another donation this year and moved to the Salute Skylab level. 
Wayne and Nahomi Holmes from Washington sent in another donation this year and moved to the mere ISS level. Graham M. from Australia sent in another donation this year and moved to the shuttle level. Chris L. donated at the Apollo level. Dirk H. donated at the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji. John E. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Simon G. donated at the Mercury level. Richard M. from the UK donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Ron B. from Arizona increased his pledge on Patreon to the Salute Skylab level. Michael P. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Shell A. from Norway pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Monday R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. Matthew W. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Chris L. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Futurama King pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned a galaxy emoji. Greg Z. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you very, very much for supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the content provided here, and are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. And here is something new. Several supporters have set up PayPal to make small monthly contributions to the podcast. Now, this used to not work, but apparently it does now. So if you want to do that, it's another way to support the podcast. We are now at 239 Patreon donors with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 420 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. For the 420 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Here's Mrs. SRH. Thanks, Mike. Hello everyone. I'm happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Matthew Farmer. Matthew Farmer, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 420 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, The Internet Archive, CBS News, ABC News, Apollo 14 Surface Journal, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 319 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.